Welcome to Can, Can We, we talk, talk About this? this? I'm your host, Amberly from The Power of Birth. And I'm your producer, Rajelle from Be Designs. And together we created this podcast to talk about women's health and the things that really matter. We have a real passion and focus on women's health and wellness and overall emphasize the importance of talking about maternal health. We chat to experts and continue sharing your stories. We're here to start the conversation, raise awareness, spread the word, call out gaps in the system and implicit biases. And we hope you learn something or even if you're just screaming yes the entire podcast. This is not a place for small talk. We're about real talk. And when we know better, we do better. And we challenge you to start this conversation elsewhere. Did you know you can find further resources on thepowerofbirth.net via the printable resources tab that includes things like a hospital bag checklist, postpartum toolbox, pelvic health information, and so much more. Don't forget while you're there to subscribe to thepowerofbirth.net for your free printable motherhood affirmations. I hope you love them as much as I do. In our culture, it's hard to be considered a good mother and it's really easy to be considered a bad mother. Research has shown that women's feelings of being pressured to be the perfect mother are related to increased maternal guilt, a lower belief in their capacity to mother, and higher stress levels, even when these women do not hold strong mothering beliefs themselves. The pressure to do it all perfectly and make it look effortless is hurting women. We have been sold this idea that motherhood is blissful and fulfilling and joyous when in actual fact, at times, it is the complete opposite. But we can't talk about that because that means we're a bad mum, right? Today, Ali Pemba from Good Enough Mothers joins me to chat about what it means to be good enough and resist this pressure to be perfect despite its heavy influence. Ali is a coach and psychotherapist with over 10 years experience, specializing in empowering women at all stages of motherhood. She is passionate and I'd like to say a bit of a powerhouse. Ali, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Amber. Do you know what? I've never been called a powerhouse. But that's yeah I have I looked you up and I've been following you for a little while and I, that's exactly how I would describe you <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm flattered I like that description yeah because do you know what I think that's what we need within this this discussion really um, and it's something I don't see very often mm, yeah well you're so welcome <laughs> I wanted to ask you about you though first yeah. because I actually find your strength your story quite interesting so your entry into motherhood was quite unexpected and mm. later in life. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, sure. I think I find it very ironic that I now specialize in perinatal mental health. Um, because if you'd asked me that, um, yeah, 11 years ago. So, you know, even in the span of time I've been doing it, I, I wouldn't have had a clue that that would be where I'd be going because I hadn't had children and I hadn't had kids when all my friends were having kids, you know, so back in my sort of late 20s and 30s. So I was 40 when I had my daughter and she was a complete and utter and genuine accident. A very lovely accident. <laughs> it completely transformed my life, but nonetheless an accident. Um, because when me and my partner met, he already had children from a previous relationship and had made it quite clear to me that he didn't want any more kids. So I kind of mm. knew what I was getting into there. And I'd also done quite a lot of work on myself, which sounds like a funny thing to say. And maybe it will make sense when we start to sort of talk about um, you know, motherhood being this idea it's meant to be fulfilling. I'd done a lot of work to try and find other sources of fulfillment in my life. 
So I wasn't looking at becoming a mum as something that would somehow complete me. And I think for, for so many women, they feel that something's missing until they have a baby, a, a child. Um, and I probably didn't know what I was missing until I had my baby. But I, yeah, I'd done so much inner work on being okay with the fact that I might not have children. So it was a mm. shock. Yeah, wow. I relate, though, a lot to what you say in terms of sort of had decided that you weren't going to have children and that it came unexpectedly because that's exactly what happened to me. Mm. And it is a whirlwind when you're not expecting it because, I don't know, you're just consciously not preparing for it. So I, I relate to that. And I wanted to ask you then, I don't know, I feel like when you hit 40, this may be a myth, I'm not sure, you can tell me though that you sort of have it all figured out, right? Is that true? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know that you ever have it all figured out. Um, true. <laughs> my, my sense is that the more you know, the more you realise that you don't know. Um, mm. So I'm now 50, actually, and my daughter's 10. And oh, does wisdom come with age? To a certain extent it does. But then I think, yeah, there is that sense of there's so much that, I can see now that I think I just don't have a handle on this. I'm constantly learning. And I think when you're in relationship, actually, with your baby, with your child, that's ever changing. That landscape of what you're having to navigate as a parent is changing. And so mm. there's constant learning. There's constant growth in that. Um, and again, we might come on to this term, but this idea of matrescence being um, the period of time you adjust to motherhood my sense is that that never really ends you know even yeah. when you have adult children I think that brings up a whole another set of challenges that you have to work mm. through so yeah I, I think perhaps in my pre-child 40 year old self I thought I had it all figured out right then yeah. in my post-child <laughs> 40 plus self I'm like I so don't have it figured out yeah I I totally agree with you. And are you familiar with Dr. Orly Athen? Yes, yes. Yes, who, I um, would have termed, assumed you were. Yeah. The, well, she didn't term yes. matrescence, but she took matrescence as a concept and really expanded on it. It was originally Donna Raphael that came up with the term. But yeah, Orly Athen has, yeah, big theorist in the area. Yeah, big. And she said, she sort of talks about this idea that you are forever developing throughout motherhood alongside of your with your child so going you know from the infant to the toddler to the small child the prepubescent the adolescent you know and I I look at my oldest you know and him experiencing things for the first time I'm also experiencing those things for the first time so yeah it's totally relatable for sure mm. I did want to ask you what you found the most difficult about this transition maybe it was you know the fact that it was unexpected but mm. I find that when I ask this question to people I get a lot of similar answers regardless of what their journey looked like mm. so I'm just curious to know sure. I think I had spent a lot of time in my head when I was younger I think my life felt fairly orderly and in control I'd had a corporate job I'd um, been quite successful in that and I think what I was unprepared for was the sheer physical reality 
of having a baby. Uh, mm. The embodied nature of it. Um, the fact that, you know, for starters, you're obviously growing a whole nother human being inside your body, which messes with your head. It's mind blowing. <laughs> it's yeah. mind blowing. And you have to kind of, even from pregnancy onwards, get used to this idea that your needs are not necessarily paramount. You know, that, and again, we'll probably come into this, but you start to kind of center the needs of the baby and the child when really up until that point in the whole of your adult life, you've probably been used to putting yourself first. And that's profoundly unsettling from a, an identity perspective. Mm. And then when the baby arrives, no matter I think how the baby arrives, and I, I did a lot of preparation for birth and I actually had a very positive birth experience. I know so many people don't. Um, but it's such a physical process. It's, it's, it's so intense. Um, it's something you have to allow to happen. And I think, you know, I was frightened and wanting to control aspects of that. And I soon realized I, I just had to go with it. I just had to allow this process to happen. And then the same thing really with then nurturing and caring for that baby. So I did breastfeed, I breastfed for quite a while actually, up until my daughter was three. Um, again, completely unexpectedly, I had no intention of doing that. I thought I'd be like six months and done, um, or bottle feed, you know. I didn't, I didn't think that was gonna be possible even. But again, just how physical that is. You're mm. this milk producing kind of machine. You know, I, I remember I went back to work and it was hilarious because I was sat in this kind of quite important strategy meeting and I was away from my baby and my boobs started to kind of throb and I had to go to the bathroom to pump and I was sitting there thinking I'm a lactating mammal and I'm in a boardroom this is ridiculous yeah <laughs> just the physicality I suppose and I know that won't be everybody's experience listening because we all have different journeys through pregnancy and then birth and then postpartum but I think whatever your journey the sheer physicality of having this little being come out of your body however they come out of your body and however you feed them is just monumental it is yeah and it's almost like we we can understand it, we can, um, you know, research it and look at the biological, I guess, elements and factors involved. But even when you sort of understand the mechanics, it's some of it is still, yeah, mind-blowing. I guess that's the only word I can think of yeah. in this time. But, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And I, I remember being pregnant with my first and I had hyperemesis gravidarum. And so I was really struggling being pregnant. <laughs> it was a real struggle. And, you know, sort of looking at this changing body, and because my pregnancy was unexpected, I was sort of like, I, I'm not consenting to this, you know, like, but it's just doing this without my permission. And like, I remember standing in the bathroom and having like these, you know, I was very emotional, obviously having hyperemesis and things. I was a bit of a mess anyway, but it was just, it blew my mind all the time when I would think about it. Um, so then what is it that led you to then working with mothers? So sort of going from this corporate world 
into this world? What was it? I think because it was such a shock, a physical shock, it was a catalyst for me. And it gave me probably the confidence to do something different because there was this increasing incongruence really between the reality of my life and the environment I was being asked to present myself in. And that that Mm. sort of sitting in the meeting example is just one of many examples where I just felt that I had to keep my kind of private life, my life with my new baby hidden from the working culture I was in and it just didn't feel good to me to do that and I'd got a background in psychology I had previously trained as a counsellor psychotherapist and I think I just sort of thought this is time to leave this environment that I I don't feel is really aligned with me anymore because I mean, it sounds perhaps corny but I do think sometimes when you have a, a baby or a child it forces you to consider your values you know what's really important in life where do I want to spend my time? What do I want to be doing? Um, and yeah, so I'd, I'd say it was a catalyst. And and part of the reason as well was that I had friends who had terrible birth experiences, terrible experiences early postpartum. And because I had a pretty good time with that, I wanted to share some ways that I could help others to go through the whole of pregnancy and postpartum in a more empowered way Um, Mm. because I think one of the benefits of coming to it older actually was that I wasn't taking any shit (laughs) that's gonna sound funny but I you know I was fairly confident about what I wanted and Mm. I saw people around me who yeah really didn't know how to advocate for themselves didn't know how to navigate the medical system didn't you know had been terribly frightened in birth and had not been well supported all of that and I I wanted to be able to help so that was another motivation so essentially matrescence is what happened yes so this (laughs) realignment of values and yeah where you want to spend your time your relationships and how you want to live your life yeah that's really interesting I um well the whole reason I wanted to be talking to you today was to talk about this perfect mother myth that we're all it's so ingrained in our culture particularly here in the west and I I wanted to ask where did these pressures of being a perfect mother come from and why are there less pressures to be a perfect dad Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's a huge question and I think it's interesting that it's a pressure that's probably ramped up over the last well probably over my lifetime really over the last 40 years or so but the the roots of it come from much earlier so you can even look back to sort of industrial revolution and that was probably a turning point in women for the first time in some cultures then having the opportunity to work outside of the home and then that starts to create a different kind of motherhood really and motherhood certainly in like Victorian times becomes this um, sort of 1800s becomes put on a bit of a pedestal you know this kind of idea of the perfect angelic kind of looking mother and baby together 
um, the moral implications of what it means to be a mother and less mothering in community. So, you know, it's probably a bit of a fantasy to say that we always used to mother in community. You know, I think there is this idea that there was this mythical village. I'm not sure that there actually was. Certainly for working class women, I think they've probably always had to work actually outside the mm. home. You know, that's not mm -hmm. nothing new. Um, so for different segments of society, there's always been that pressure. But I do think we used to mother more within um, either extended family groups or, uh, yeah, social groups. And structures were there to support the family in that way. But you start to see, particularly as women enter the workforce, that that starts to dissipate. You also start to see much more individualisation. So modern capitalist consumer culture starts to sort of mm -hmm. put the focus on the individual and then you see the development of the nuclear family and then the fact that that little family unit is responsible for everything in terms of the child's well-being and development and particularly the mother and people say well why you know why is it the mother and not the father you know it was the other part of your question and it's like well it's quite convenient that it's the mother isn't it if you make it a kind of moral imperative that the mother is meant to be ever-present, ever-loving, available 24-7, that she's actually the only one who can really properly look after her children, if you make her feel so deeply responsible for that, it's quite convenient because you don't have to pay her. And yeah. so when we examine this question, it's the patriarchy at work, basically. And there are so many complex roots and reasons why that's the case, but it's embedded in the very fabric of our society, all the structures, all of the institutions. So it's quite hard to get out of it because we just think this is the way it is or this is the way it's got to be. Mm. I find a lot of women, when I talk to them particularly about this and the sort of the way that our culture has been shaped because of our past, and this patriarchy that a lot of women tend to blame feminism for the way that things are right now, mm. trying to exist in a man's world and, and basically become a man in order to sustain equality or maintain equality. And I, I guess I want to know what your views are with that. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think, you know, mothers of the sort of people that feminists forgot for a long time because mm. sort of early wave feminism was all about trying to meet men where they were in in the boardroom you know pretending to be the man which is actually possibly why I felt the pressure to scuttle off to the bathroom rather than be openly and proudly lactating you know um yeah. <laughs> you know the modern workplace just isn't set up to allow for any of that kind of difference mm -hmm. really and that's arguably what's really wrong with it as we go forward into a very different way of working um but yeah certainly i don't think you can exactly blame feminism for that but feminists did forget mothers for quite a long period of time although there were feminist writers who were mothers who realized that there was this gap um, so if you read Adrienne Rich of Woman Born, it's like, you know, mm -hmm. that that's from a long time ago. And she was experiencing exactly this. So, you know, there have been people talking about this all along. I think mm -hmm. what we are coming to an understanding of now, though, 
Um, and to credit um, my mentor, so Dr. Sophie Brock, who um, I've studied motherhood studies with, um, and her mentor, so Professor Andrea O'Reilly, talk about matricentric feminism. So this is the idea of centering mothers within the discussion. So not off on the periphery, not a kind of special interest group over there somewhere, no, but really centering mothers. Um, so I think we're beginning to see that shift. But yeah, you're right. For a long time, there was this idea that actually to achieve equality, we've got to be more like men. And I think we're beginning to realise actually, no, we don't want to be like men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we want to achieve equality, but we want that to be on our terms. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, I'm familiar with matricentric feminism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've looked that up as well, because in the early days, you know, I sort of had all the same feelings. I was sort of like, hold on a minute, like this is life changing. How is this not a part of the conversation? Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the women fighting for women's rights in those early days because it's sort of like where do you where do you begin? What do you start with? Because they really they had they were very oppressed and so it's mm-hmm. like motherhood probably wouldn't be at the forefront of that you know to sort of get their attention I guess um but while we're on this topic you introduced me to the events that took place in Iceland Mm -hmm. in 1975 when 90% of these women and mothers went on strike for a day they left their homes and their workplaces and they stood side by side and pretty much everything Grounded to a halt. Mm. Yep. Mm -hmm. And um, the day has been described as a watershed moment or a a turning point. Mm. And they are now a country that ranks as one of the most gender equal in the world. And I love this so much. And obviously, like, this is what we need, right? But I'm like, do we have to go on strike to get our countries to recognize and value what we do as mothers and women like is this the answer that's what we have to do yeah sure no it's a powerful example i think and if you go back to the historical record and you look at what happened on that day it's hilarious it's things like the shops ran out of sausages because the the men at home couldn't cook anything other than a sausage and so you know it's little details like that that i find really really fascinating yeah Um, and I think the other interesting thing was that, that they made a very conscious decision not to call it a strike. They called it a woman's day off. Yes. Because that was somehow less uh, provocative and it was somehow more acceptable. Everyone deserves a day off. Hmm. Yeah. Great. We're not going to call it a strike. We're not going to be totally militant about this. But you're right in terms of the sort of narrative in that country and what that then means even, you know, 40 odd plus years later it did shift things it was a yeah watershed moment um so i find this fascinating this idea that in order to value what we do we have to stop doing it and see what happens and it's it's interesting when you've got any group of oppressed people they're usually so busy trying just to survive that they have not got the time or luxury to stop. And if you think about mothers 
and you think about what they're trying to hold together and the fact that their primary concern is the health, safety, well-being of their children, it's actually incredibly difficult for mothers to stop. Mm-hmm. And part of the kind of the reason that the, this structure in the patriarchy perpetuates is that because we give mothers so much to do, they haven't got time to mobilize. They haven't got time to come together. They haven't got time to even meet their own basic needs. They're so busy surviving that they can't be political. And it, mm. it pisses me off. You know, I really wish that that more mothers would come together and see this for what it is and agitate for change. But I totally understand why that's often impossible. It's a luxury to be able to agitate for change, really. Um, You know, and particularly when you're looking after little ones, that's where your focus is. Mm. And I find um, a lot of the time mothers, mothers themselves struggle to see the value because we don't necessarily have the words you know so um I remember just after I had my first I had a cousin come and visit me and she was like aren't you bored (laughs) and it was sort of like I mean yeah it's it's not it's overstimulating but it's not that stimulating you know it was really hard to sort of describe what my day looked like and so you know things like I'm just a mum, you know, like the way that we would describe ourselves Mm. Um, or, you know, what do you do all day? And then, well, what did I accomplish today? Like it's, uh, it's all sort of a blur and every day sort of looks Mm. the same in a way. And, you know, we struggle to see that value within ourselves and we don't, we, we aren't able to even describe it. Mm. It's, it's challenging. Yeah. That's part of the problem. Um, we don't see that all of these hidden tasks, because they normally go on behind closed doors in the isolated nuclear family, are what keeps society going. You know, the only reason people can go out to work or go and do work from home is because someone's doing the childcare, someone's doing the domestic labour. So it's very hidden but it's almost hidden even to ourselves because it has Mm. no economic value attached to it and because in our culture we we privilege things that are that have monetary value we tend to ring fence the time of the person who is going to work so in in a partnered relationship it's like oh well you know i can't interrupt because they're at work work and that's the thing whereas if you're just mopping up some spit or you're making the 13th pot of pasta with pesto or whatever you're doing just yeah it doesn't have any doesn't seem to have any value but it has so much value Mm. I've definitely learned in the last couple of years like that recognizing that value has taken a lot of work and sort of consciousness as well in the words that I use and the way I describe what I do or, you know, things like that. And I often have discussions with my husband about, you know, um, his successes and things like he's just bought a company that he's running and, you know, this sort of thing. And it's like, we often talk about like, 
yeah, our life wouldn't look like what it did if mm. I sort of wasn't holding down the fort at home because yeah. if anything did happen to me, it what would mm. our life look like, mm. you know? And so, yeah, we often have those conversations and it's it's taken sort of a while to actually get there and be like, oh, yeah, what I do is is – is up there with what you do, you know, just because it doesn't necessarily have a dollar sign attached to it. But um, I often see this play out, say, in um, other maybe relationships or friendships and things where the woman could be working part-time, so then mothering when she's home Mm. uh, with all the attachment of, you know, the domestic labour and things, and the husband's full-time and they're still not valued. Because even though they bring in a dollar sign, it's lesser than. Mm. So it's still not good enough. Yeah. And I see this a lot too. Yeah. And I just, I struggle with that. It's frustrating, isn't it? I think you made a point earlier on, which is interesting that I wanted to pick up on, which is that sometimes we don't value it because we don't have a language to use to even describe what it is. So some of the concepts and language from matricentric feminism actually are really helpful in labelling for women, for mothers. What, what is it that you're actually doing? So what you're describing there with somebody who goes out to work and then comes home and does probably the lion's share of the domestic work is something that was identified back in the 1980s called the second shift so Ali Hochschild came up with this term and it's the fact that even in uh, partnerships where the, the woman goes out and works, even where she works full time, actually, even in kind of dual income households where they're both full time, um, she will still do the majority of the childcare and the domestic labour. Um, there's actually a cost to a woman of having a husband. So I, I can't remember the exact statistic. <laughs> But um, the amount of domestic labour increases mm-hmm. when, you, when you're in a, uh, a heterosexual uh, partnership. Um, so that, that's fascinating, isn't it? You know, the fact that we just pick this up. It's just like what's expected. But yeah. when we have some language around it, like something like the second shift, we can begin to see that it's not inevitable that it should fall to the the female partner. Um, You know, I'm not innately better at doing the washing, for example. Mm -hmm. Yep, I agree. (laughs) It's interesting because I recently, I've been having interviews for getting into a a master's for psychology just recently. And in one of the interviews, I always mention that I'm a mum and I do that on purpose. Mm -hmm. And... (laughs) The interviewers were all female and they were like, oh, well, you know, what if you get a prac that's quite far away and maybe you'd have to stay there for a period of time? Um, you know, what, what does your support look like? How, how will you be able to do this? And, you know, I, I answered confidently and I, and I said, well, you know, if I got to stay away somewhere, I wouldn't be coming home to a second shift and I could actually focus on the work that I'm doing. So if anything, that suits me better. And, you know, we had a bit of a giggle about it. But I wondered, I was like, would you ask a father this question? No, probably it, not. No, of course mm. not. <laughs> and I just found it bizarre because mm. they were all female. <laughs> mm. So women sort of 
and like it's so deeply ingrained women are sort of doing it to women yeah you know and we we're not conscious of that we're not recognizing that well let's get into then this perfect mother right Mm. so you let's talk about what she looks like what are the myths that we're sold about motherhood Mm -hmm. yeah so the theorist i like to draw upon and again sophie brock kind of opened my eyes up to a lot of this world and this language and these theorists um but it's somebody called sharon hayes who first defined intensive mothering excuse me ideology so intensive mothering ideology and that was back in 1996 so you know a lot of this stuff's been around quite a long time which is another thing i find interesting which is that the the debate doesn't shift much if I look mm. at these, this definition, really, it's very much the definition that we live by today. And so in, in her sort of viewpoint, the perfect mother or the intensive mother, really, because the intensive mother and the perfect mother are kind of quite similar. Um, it's very child centered. So her focus is on the needs of the baby and the child rather than on her own needs. So, you know, and a lot of um, mothers I work with look at me and sort of say, well, yes, of course, that's exactly what it, you know, what you're telling me I shouldn't be focused on my child. You know, of course, so it's not as simple as a binary, but there's certainly this sense that the, the baby, the child is is the total and utter focus of motherhood. Um, and you can see that in things like when you're pregnant, you know, you're perhaps um, the focus is on you, but then the minute the baby's here, everyone buys stuff for the baby everyone asks about the baby and that in western culture mothers do not have a kind of lying in period they don't have support social support they're left to get on with it so that's the first point perfect mother everything's focused on the needs of the baby and the child the second aspect is it tends to involve lots of very intensive methods so it's very emotionally absorbing it's expert-led it's often quite financially expensive you know we think we have to provide the best educational activities the best quality toys um, a stimulating environment Um, so the pressure to kind of cut back paid work actually is in there too because often the expense and the expert piece is at the expense of the mother you know the fact that because we are not sufficient in and of ourselves we have to kind of bring in all of this outside influence so you know the perfect mother is out there busily researching everything to the nth degree you know middle of the night she's not actually getting any rest she's frantically googling you know how can i best meet my child's attachment needs for example Mm. um and then the, the last sort of part of Sharon Hayes' de- description is that motherhood is this kind of, it's like a sort of moral endeavour, moral enterprise. So it's instinctive. It requires conditional, unconditional, sorry, unconditional and continued maternal love. So perfect in that way. It's selfless. And it's the woman's most important contribution to society. So you can, there's no other thing that, that you can achieve this sense of fulfillment and completeness in. Motherhood is the thing. So there's mm. these three kind of components. You know, it's all about the child. It's very intensive. 
emotionally absorbing, led by experts. It's also got this moral quality to it. And it serves to keep us very much in these kind of parameters. And Sophie Brock uses an analogy which is quite helpful, which is that of a fish tank. So it's like we are the fish swimming in this water the tank is like the rules that society have has created around what a perfect mother is and does we might not even be aware that we're in the tank so we're swimming along past other mothers (laughs) we're sort of getting that reflected back to us we don't really think we're even in the water we have no idea the water's Mm. like our socialization it's everything that's been fed to us since we were girls ourselves Mm-hmm. So a lot of the roots of what it means to be a perfect mother goes right back to things like having a baby doll and being being the mother of the baby doll and all of the messages we will have picked up from our own mothers, mm-hmm. then from our peers, as you said, all of the sort of um, gatekeepers, really the people who tell us what a good mother is. We're, we're mm. just swimming in it. It's very hard for us to see that we're swimming in it. Well, it's really interesting that what you had just said there, because I did a little experiment and I went and asked some people in the power birth community and then some of my friends to tell me what they thought a perfect mother looked like. Mm -hmm. And I won't read all of it because there's a lot of it, Mm -hmm. but just to sort of go with the the examples that were going with what you said. So she's married. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, She contributes financially, but she stays at home. Mm. Um, Her house is always clean. Mm -hmm. She's always well-groomed. She birthed vaginally. She loved and embraced pregnancy and bounced back very quickly. She cooks organically. She's fertile. Her kids don't watch TV or have tablets. She's creative and always engaged and organized and planned. She has life experience. She's environmentally friendly. Mothering comes naturally to her. Um, she's super mum because she does it all. She has an intact pelvic floor. She's not too old, but she's not too young. Um, she handles hardship gracefully. Um, she remains unchanged and watches her figure and makes motherhood look effortless. Like the list goes on. Like I've got a whole page of stuff. But a lot of that goes into all three or four segments that you had just mm. talked about. And this is just from me going out into, you know, my circles to see what this picture looks like. Yeah, sure. I I know. It's impossible to be all of those things. It's impossible. Exactly. So it sets us up to fail. Um, Mm. And that list, actually, is interesting. So I've got I've got another list here. So this this is from (laughs) um, Professor Andrea O'Reilly who talks about the rules of good motherhood and this this correlates with quite a lot of what your participants have said so it's like number one children can only be properly cared for by their biological mother Mm. number two the mothering must be provided 24 7 Mm -hmm. number three the mother must always put a child's needs before her own so that's back to that point around it being very centered on the baby and the child Number four, mothers must turn to experts for instruction. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's to do with the intensive part. Number five, the mother must be fully satisfied, fulfilled, completed and composed in motherhood. Number six, the mother must lavish excessive amounts of time, energy and money in the rearing of the children. 
Number seven, the mother has full responsibility but no power from which to mother. And number eight, motherhood and child rearing are regarded as personal and private undertakings with no political importance. Wow. It's strange, isn't it? <laughs> it is strange, because not so strange when you think about yes, what it enables. Well, it's strange because we all sort of buy into these beliefs. And then that pressure comes back on us and we, we put that pressure on ourselves. Mm. And I, one of the things that caught my attention with what you said was, you know, that a mother, I'm paraphrasing here, but a mother, you know, finds fulfillment and it's joyful and it's blissful and it's all these things. And so when we buy into a belief like that, for instance, we then don't talk about times of struggle or challenge or difficulty and I saw this when I entered motherhood. I, I was very vocal about the challenge and often wondered why no one had told me mm. certain things about it. You know, when I would open up on a one-on-one level, not in a group setting, groups, nobody will talk to you. <laughs> on a one-on-one, a one-on-one, I would often find that they were all saying the same things. And so I was like, why, why aren't we talking about this? Like, why... Why is this not at the forefront of conversations in motherhood over, you know, trying to make it appear like it's effortless and it's blissful and it's all these things? It, it's just so bizarre to me. Yeah, it's it's kind of, I've called it somewhere else, like it is a conspiracy of silence, you know. Um, yeah. You, I think there's something profoundly unsettling to people to admit that they're finding motherhood anything less than peachy. Because if they admit that, they fear judgment Mm -hmm. from others. And there's something about appearing to have it all together. Appearing as though you've got things under control. Because if you really do admit to anyone, actually, even yourself, your partner, friends, whoever, that you haven't got it all together, that this isn't going very well, that actually it will all fall apart. So, you know, I find it interesting that that there's always this intersection in my work between the individual and between the environment that they're in, between the sociology, between the culture. And as you say, there is this very strong cultural narrative of motherhood should be this completing, fulfilling, wonderful thing. And then the reality for so many women is the complete opposite actually that it's got moments of more than moments huge great stretches of time where it's completely unfulfilling totally boring totally mundane totally unstimulating often quite traumatic you know if they've come out of a difficult pregnancy difficult birth experience difficulties breastfeeding isolating lonely um and their reality is so at odds with the image that they've been sold that they think, well, there must be something wrong with me. So the clients I see in my psychotherapy practice feel ashamed. They feel deep feelings of shame about the fact that they're not living up to what they perceive everybody else is. And because of this conspiracy of silence, because when you go to the mum and baby group, 
people generally, you know, they're cheerful. They try and keep it together. You don't see someone completely bursting into tears. Well, you maybe do in some groups, but generally everyone's, oh, we're here at baby sensory class. Isn't it amazing? And you go home and you think, oh, everyone else has got this. I haven't. Therefore, I am defective. There's something wrong with me. I am a bad mm. mother. Mm-hmm. And it's shame. It's shame that stops people from speaking out. And I find social media probably amplifies or intensifies those feelings as well because you know we're, we're seeing all the pretty pictures and it does look effortless online. And I find a lot of the time when people are open and honest about their experience, there's a lot of people that do shame them mm. for being open and honest. And I've seen that over and over again. Mm. Yeah. Uh, just recently I read a comment. It was a string of them, but, you know, one of these comments was something like, oh, I'm so sick of all these mothers complaining about how hard it is. Like they have it so much better than we do and we did and, oh, you know, off they go. Um, but, yeah, it's. I just find that really almost bizarre that that's what happens. Mm. Well, again, yeah. the, the roots of this stuff are really deeply embedded and, it, you know, it's, it's quite frightening to think that mothers might rise up and uh, collectivise and break free of all these. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll be like Iceland. <laughs> we have a day yes. off. yeah. Do you know what though? That whole idea of going on 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 strike. I think it's it's funny. I sort of, I, you see this phenomenon at the moment of quiet quitting, don't you? That's the latest thing in yes. the workplace. Yes. Thing quiet quitting, and quite often I'm a bit subversive with the the mums I work with, and I'm like, have you tried quiet quitting? You know, have you have you tried stopping oh, doing stuff that? So you know, just coming up here at the moment into the Christmas season and. Um, there's so much sometimes that I see mums doing that they think they've got to do. Yeah. And yet, really, when you examine what the kids are enjoying or what's necessary for the family to have a good time, it, it's it's not all the stuff that they're doing. And they're burning themselves out in the process. And so sometimes I, I will you know, gently challenge people to stop. You know, maybe not quit completely, but stop. It really examine whether what you're doing is coming from a place of your values and what you genuinely enjoy or whether it's coming from this place of should i should be doing this Mm. and typically the stuff that's coming from that place of should is a lot to do with with those perfect mother myths the myths of the good mother the intensive mothering ideology Mm -hmm. and when you really compare that with your values which probably are things like to be present with my child but you know not 24 7 but to not provide them with these intensively wonderful educational experiences but just to hang out with them life gets a bit easier put down the shoulds and start living more from a place of your values yeah i think that's great advice particularly in this season Mm. um I've seen a lot on social media, a lot of discussions about women coming into this season or mothers coming into this season exhausted at even the thought of it. Mm. And so I think that that's really sound advice for right now. 
Mm. Is it coming from a should? Mm. Is it within your values? You know, and sort of revisiting those and re- reshaping them even. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Well, you've sort of, I guess you've sort of answered it, but what good enough mother is sort of what you do in your mm. practice. Mm. So what is good enough mother? and what does it mean what does it look like we've talked about what the perfect mother looks like what's a good enough mother look like yeah sure (laughs) well it's interesting as a term it's actually derived from psychoanalysis and um so it was first developed by a man a a chap called donald winnicott back in the 1950s actually and I think the meaning has evolved since, and I'll talk a bit about how what I mean about it. But what he meant about it was in his observations of working with many, many different mother and infant pairs, mother and child pairs, and he was also a paediatrician, so a psycho- psychoanalyst and paediatrician. He observed that there was no such thing as a perfectly attuned mother and baby, or mother and child dyad. That, that there were lots of moments of disconnection um, when the mum did not anticipate the child's needs, when they were unable to really pick up on what the cries meant, you know, and lots throughout an entire day, really, of this kind of these ruptures of, of connection. So far from being this perfectly attuned, present, connected being this kind of perfect being who's just able to kind of seamlessly deal with the needs of their baby and child your ordinary mother is constantly dropping the ball Mm. and the interesting thing for Winnicott when he describes the good enough mother the good enough mother is actually the healthy model for the child because in handling those moments of disconnection She's then modelling for the child what it means to be in relationship because human relationships are messy. They're full of miscommunication, full of difficulty. And if the mother is constantly pretending that she's got it all together and everything's good and, you know, trying to maintain this facade both for herself and the outside world and for her child, it's going to collapse. And actually, it's not very healthy for the parent-child relationship. It's not very healthy for the child to sort of see a mother who's trying to be perfect all of the time. So he was very encouraging about what he called the good enough mother, because in his view, it it was actually the the good enough was the perfect model of what it means to be uh, a good mother. And what I mean by it is just this sense that good enough, I think, will vary for all of us and it comes back to that question of what our values are so my Mm. good enough will probably look quite different to your good enough but it's moving away from that narrative of should all the stuff I should be doing much more into a space where I can reflect upon and then act out my values what is it that's meaningful to me and my family So for me, that might look like no screen time for my kids, you know, so that's an example that crops up quite often for people. Maybe that's a really strong value of mine that I want them to spend much more time outdoors in nature, for example. Um, Maybe I've got very strong beliefs about how that's a healthier way to be. 
great prioritize that do that if that's really coming from a place of your values but if that's coming from a place of shoulds oh i really shouldn't you know oh I, they've been on the tablet or they've been watching tv that's terrible i'm a bad mother you know look at all these other people on instagram and social media who are on this amazing beach or whatever i haven't done that today we've just sat indoors and and if that's the sort of knee-jerk reaction that's coming up for you all the time the, the likelihood is that's coming from this place of should when perhaps the reason that the kids were doing that is because it gave you some time and space to do some stuff for yourself which mm. then made you better able to connect with them later on the following day and perhaps you then did go out to the park or did do something special so it's about coming back to what matters to you and dropping the things that don't serve you as a family, that don't serve you as an individual. Mm. So then <clears throat> I do love that and I do see that that is very effective and I notice that I have sort of done those things as, you know, as, as mm. I'm learning to mother because mm. I said it certainly is a work in progress isn't it yeah <laughs> but I find that a lot of the time you know we are we're doing it to each other we're projecting this perfect mother myth onto each other how can we stop ourselves from repeating this behavior and see the good enough in others who maybe choose to do things differently, differently. yeah yeah well it comes back to this idea and again this is I think a concept that Sophie Brock talks about quite a lot of maternal gatekeeping and the, the sort of the guarding of these rules you know so we're also mm. looking at each other and even even internally we're applying the rules mm -hmm. i think some of it is about having an awareness so the very fact that we're even having this conversation means that it isn't just how things are you cannot change or challenge what you're not aware of so a large part of what i try to do is not to say to people, this is how you should mother. You know, my, as I said earlier, my definition of good enough is probably going to be very different to yours. But it's in raising awareness of the fact that there are these kind of perfect mother myths and, and rules. And then I find that when you share that with people, sometimes they weren't even aware that that's what they were operating within or that that's what they were judging others by. So there's a sense of um, empowerment in having the language, the tools, the ability to talk about this stuff. I think the next thing to say is that we're, we are a social species. We do compare. That's very human. That's very normal, very natural. Um, I think the next time you find yourself doing that, it's not to beat yourself up for making those comparisons. It's just to then think, okay, that is a very human part of me, probably trying to validate my own choices. So often we will other and shame other people doing something very different to us because it somehow makes us feel better about what we choose to do. Mm. So again, it comes back to awareness, just having a bit of an awareness sometimes that what they're doing isn't necessarily bad and wrong. It's just very different to what I'm doing. Do I, do I really need to comment on that? No, I probably mm. don't. In fact, if anything, that's a flag for me to look at what I'm doing. 
and consider whether it's in alignment with my values. Um, you know, often when we're quick to judge, it's actually flagging something up for us to look at. Mm. Not Self-awareness, easy. I think, is definitely, yeah, it's a learned skill. And I've, uh, growing up, I quickly realized just how unself-aware people were. Mm. And yeah, it's it's tricky because it's definitely something that takes a lot of practice. Mm. But I find, yeah, the more you do it, the better at it you'll be. And maybe to a point, I mean, you're human, so mm. these things will still always come up. But you may get to a point where you're sort of at peace with it and you're maybe not projecting things onto others as like you used yeah. to. So you'd see the progress for yeah. sure. It is a lot about self-development and, yeah, working Mm. on yourself. And this is where there's this kind of, it's interesting, you know, I'd I'd love to change society. I'd love to change the rules, the structures. (laughs) Um, It's deeply frustrating to me that it's, it's still so embedded. And yet, I think, unfortunately, one of the places you can the only place perhaps you can begin sometimes is with yourself um coming together in community as best you can with others you can be honest with so i think you know you said earlier on sometimes there are there are those one-to-one conversations there are sometimes people that you can share the honest dirty reality Mm. of your motherhood journey with you know and that can be uh a very liberating thing to do to have one or two friends that you, you just get it and mm. that you know you're not alone um, but I'm constantly flip-flopping between the two it's like making people aware of the social context but then coming back to okay what can we work on in ourselves so mm. that we don't apply these judgments both to ourselves and to others mm. yeah definitely a good way to be I think and I mean, just within this conversation, so many gems. And uh, I think I, I love that we talked about the the social or cultural influence in motherhood or what this belief about motherhood, this perfect mothering, this intensive mothering, because I just it is just so relevant and it is so important to understand, I think, because I, I feel like once you understand that, while it's frustrating, you sort of let go of some frustrations as well because, or maybe it's that self-blame and that guilt and things that you let go of because mm. you can sort of see, okay, it's it's not me. It's it's the system yeah. hasn't been designed for me and, and, mm. and we have to exist in them. So with frustration, it also sort of comes liberating yeah. at the same time. That's sure. what I found anyway. Yeah. And the less you um, blame yourself, the less you judge others actually you know and and the heart of my approach is self-compassion actually and the the more self-compassion that you have the more then you're able to extend compassion to others so yeah it's not an easy process but it's a practice Mm. yeah definitely definitely and I think you know um revisiting your values and things and maybe that's something that would come up as well and consciously practicing those things for sure. So you're talking about culture and things. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult to mother within the culture that we live in. And, you know, there's things like mum rage and mum guilt, and there's all these sorts of terms that 
obviously are specific to feelings in motherhood or experiences. How can we embrace all of the emotions and experiences motherhood brings us? I think it probably ties in a lot with self-compassion, mm-hmm. but is there is there a thing? Mm. <laughs> is there a thing? Well, it's the thing is maternal ambivalence, um, mm. which is another theory if you like so sometimes it helps to have labels and theories to talk about how we're feeling rosika parker sort of describes this and it's the fact that feelings of love and hate or any other opposite can exist at the same time Mm, that's so powerful isn't it yeah and that little word and is incredibly helpful sometimes because i'll i'll hear mothers sort of saying oh, this, 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 and this, I feel terrible about this, 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 and this, because I haven't done the stuff I think I should do. And and then I'm like, okay, but that exists as well as your love and care for your child. Your love and care for your child doesn't go away just because you've had a bad day. Mm. But they'll be so busy beating themselves up about all the stuff that they didn't do, the way that they did get angry the way that they were rough the way that they yeah you know obviously you're going to reflect on your behavior and you're perhaps going to try and make changes and another concept that's quite interesting to apply in this domain is around the difference between guilt and shame so guilt Mm. is healthy it's adaptive it's where you're actually picking up on things that are not in alignment with your values So to come back to the sort of screen time example, actually, it might be more your screen time. So you might feel pretty guilty that you've spent all morning scrolling on your phone and you've not been very present and connected with your child. And that might be gnawing away at you and you think, oh, actually, yeah, I'll put down my phone. I'll be present. That to me is a little healthy piece of guilt there. That's basically saying Mm -hmm. to you, maybe time to course correct, make a bit of a change. But the problem for a lot of mothers that I perceive is that they'll go straight from that place of a healthy little nudge of guilt deeply into shame. And they'll start to consider all the other times they've been on their phone, all the other times they haven't been present, all of the things they haven't done. And they'll get into this very negative spiral of I'm a bad mother, I'm a bad person. Other people are doing loads of really engaging activities with their child. It's my fault. It's my problem. So the shame part is about me as a person. And that's not healthy. That's not adaptive. Mm. So I think sometimes when you notice these things coming up in yourself, if you're feeling guilty, mum guilt, or even, yeah, the mum rage, you're probably feeling guilty about the mum rage. Mm -hmm. There are some elements of that that are important to reflect on are there certain situations that trigger this in me are there certain changes i could make to the way that i am say in the morning or whatever it is that's the most triggering time to make make things easier for all of us to come back into a state of emotional regulation or am i so deeply in this idea of shame about these conflicting feelings these difficult feelings that I can't really do anything productive with that. Mm. Coming out of that place of shame. 
which is, again is not easy but a lot of that is about applying self-compassion so the fact that these contrasts can exist in the first place it's a, that's totally normal maternal ambivalence is very very common people do feel quite extremes of emotion mm. little babies and children bring up big extremes of emotion in us so not being frightened of that really that that's that's the territory that's just how it's going to be so get used to that word and mm. i can be happy and really sad i can be bored and i can be really fulfilled mm. i can love my child with all my heart and absolutely loathe certain things about the way that they're being in this particular stage i find when a lot of women talk about say maybe the darker side or the the forbidden side of of motherhood that um the harder things that are to say out loud it, it's always followed with but i love my kids but mm. i you know it's always like this reassurance that yeah uh, i i'm saying this and i feel this way but i i also have to reassure you that like i'm i'm not a bad mom and i still love my kids like yeah it's funny isn't it mm. but yeah maternal ambivalence that was when i first learned about that it was so powerful for me and mm. it it sort of just allowed me to just be yeah. you know I you know you stop beating yourself up about it it's okay for sure yeah, but, yeah. doesn't yeah. mean you're a bad mum I just want to say Ali I have loved this conversation it's been so nice getting to know you thank you so much for your time today and I I can't wait to release this because there's just so many gems in this episode oh, so yeah. thank you so much thanks Amber yeah no it's great to properly meet you too and, and I love talking about this stuff so you know I'm very happy to be here thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode if you're listening and would like to share your story with us or feel compelled to talk about issues surrounding women's health please don't hesitate to reach out we would love to hear from you you can find us at the power of birth on instagram and facebook or on our website thepowerofbirth.net if you loved this episode we would love it if you left us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and share us with your family and friends the conversation has to start somewhere. Thank you again for listening and we hope you join us in the next episode.